Hello, my name is Matthias Scherer. I'm a professional ice climber and a Norena ambassador. Welcome to Norona Podcast. My name is Aive Neitzlot. In Norona Podcast, we want to inspire you and facilitate great adventures in nature by meeting exciting people and telling fascinating stories. In this episode, we will meet Matthias Scherer, a professional ice climber from Germany. He is now living in a small village in the Aosta Valley in Italy, together with Tanja Schmidt, his partner in both life and ice climbing. Matthias has climbed classic faces and ridge traverses in the Alps since the early 90s and started ice climbing back in 1993. He has climbed over a thousand frozen waterfalls all over Europe and Canada, including many first ascents. We have set up a small podcast studio in Chamonix to talk with Matthias about his ice climbing passion and ask him, how can we become ice climbers? Hi, Matthias. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Nurona Podcast. Yeah, welcome, Evert. Thanks for having me. You look strong and happy. Yeah, I had a good run today. 1,000 vertical meters right from front of my door where I live in the National Park in the Grand Paradiso. You did? And, yeah. 1,000 verticals. 1,000 verticals. That's what I do normally every day. and uh, Every day? Every day during the summer. Yeah. And then uh, some running. Yeah. And um, in between some easier running in the morning or so, then the 1000 vertical meters, and then also, of course, climbing, dry tooling, rock climbing. So, this is the summer. And then some office in between. So, but yeah. you train every day? I train every day. Yeah. In the summer, I train every day to get fit for the winter again. Yeah. So, summer is less going to the mountains, it's less doing long routes, it's more doing. Uh, a lot of climbing on cracks, as I said, free climbing or dry tooling. We have a small crack that is just above uh, the apartment where I live. Yeah. And I'm pretty fortunate to can access all these cracks by foot. So I don't need to use a car. So the village where I live is at 1600 meters in the mountains and I can run up to 3500 meters on passes. And then I kept all these cracks for climbing and for dry tooling just in front of my door. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think it's also nice in these days to use as less fossil energy you can while practicing and while training. Yeah. And since I'm traveling quite a bit in the winter, I decided now in the summer to cut down and to say, okay, I stay where I am. I do my work. I do my meetings as much as I can yeah. uh, online and then um, work from home office, you say, and train from home. And no more going here and there for rock climbing. Just say, okay, summer is time to rebuild. And then in winter, it's time to travel and to find new places for us climbing. Yeah. Sounds like a great philosophy. Just make your home like a base camp during summer. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I said, I'm very fortunate that I can live at a place like this where we have the mountains really in front of our door and also then of course in the winter that was the motivation why I came became living there in 2004 we have 100 ice falls just in approximately of our apartment so for 50 I need the car five minutes and for the other one I don't even need a car oh. so that makes the whole place also super special in the winter yeah uh, the, I remember the first winter that I lived there together with Tanya um, in 2004 your wife? Yeah, my wife and also a Marana ambassador and is very strong ice climber. Yeah. Uh, we didn't use the car. We climbed just... Uh, we just walked to the We just cracks. walked every day to the place and we were just the whole winter there and just climbed and climbed and skied and climbed. Mm. And yeah, amazing place. Also a lot of cross-country skiing that might be interesting for our Norwegian mm. friends because I love also cross-country skiing. And we have this very amazing... Uh, a piece we have often the world cups for cross-country skiing there and i can start from the front of my door right away with the cross-country skiing so it's really uh, a very convenient place therefore but you didn't grow up in the Alster valley you, no you grew up somewhere totally different absolutely i grew up in the middle of germany in frankfurt 
financial metropolitan, and my mom was the general manager of intercontinental hotels in all of Germany oh. back in the days. First woman to achieve a position yeah. like this. A career woman. Yeah, a career woman, totally. She had this job for 25 years. So, and then my father was professor at the university and I have a sister and she is one of German's famous writers and television. Host. Yeah, entertainers. Yeah. Hosts now, yeah, 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 yeah. So how did you become an ice climber in this kind of family? Yeah, so the, the I would say the passion was born not far from here. So I was really lucky to the, let's say, job of my mom. She was always able to get free time for holidays over Christmas, Eastern and on summer. Yeah. And she was a really dedicated traveling woman. Just to understand the thing about my mom, in 1953, she was born in 1933, she cycled all alone from near to Frankfurt to the North Cape. She did? Yeah. In 1953? In 1953. When she was 20 years old? When she was 20 years old. She went all the way from Germany, all alone, with a, all, with the bicycles from back yeah, in the day, yeah. up to the North Cape and back. So that was her summer holidays. What a legend. Yeah. So, and did you see there, this, this spirit for traveling and adventure, I think, came from this, strongly from this side. It's in your blood. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And um, so in um, then in the winter, I s started skiing here 20 kilometers from here in Mejève. Mejève is a great, yeah. great village. Yeah, great village. And I was, this was the happiest time of my year uh, when I could go skiing there. I was four years old. It was uh, in 1978. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Au Mont-Jolie. Yep, Montjoly, yep. exactly. And then when you know the Montjoly and you know the Côte de Mille, yep. above the Côte de Mille, there's this cirque. And in this cirque, there are very, very, um, let's say, high difficult ice climbs. Yeah. And so there, is a, there was a small lift on, in this, can I say, cirque on the Côte de Mille. And on this baby lift, I learned skiing. So there's pictures for me where these ice falls are already behind. And then I remember that I looked at this, Sinks. I could not even really see that it was ice. I was just, for me, okay, the, the big attraction was the Mont Blanc, of course. Mm -hmm. When we were skiing in Petex and we were looking over from Saint-Gervais, I saw the Mont Blanc and I was going, what is up there on this big mountain? Like, it was like a big green. Yeah. And, but it was also this, this, this big steep. For me, it was kind of snow cruise. I could not really imagine that it could be ice. Of, but yeah, that was already there. And I was really, I was really, um, inspired by this, uh, by this, uh, by this different terrain and also by this, yeah, by this steep looking ice formations. Mm. And so that never left really my, my thinking. My family was not supporting any kind of this activity except skiing. So I started in when I was 16 years old. That was in 1990. I started with ski touring in the same area. And, uh, but yeah, I always had an eye on the Mont Blanc and always an eye on these ice falls. And, and then I realized, okay, this is ice. This is water ice. I saw first pictures of water ice climbing, but I had not yet the possibility to start because, as I said, my family was not so really into this. No. Um, yeah. So this was where you can say the passion was born. And, uh, an interesting point is I finally could climb one of these lines. Um, was, I think, 2019, okay. we were formed. Yeah. And that was for me, as, it was by far not the hardest climb that I've done. It was a, it is a very committed place because it's very dangerous for avalanches. And also the climbing is in the higher grade, but it's by far not, let's say, the, the hardest climb I've done. But I was emotionally, it was for me an amazing day. And I had to follow my father and I had to follow my sister. My mom has died already. And I had to explain them what I did today that I achieved this big childhood dream. Yeah. Like <clears throat> something... It was kind of a guiding light for years, you can say. Your life kind of full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But starting uh, climbing, it was in January 93 during a ski vacation with the school in Austria. Okay. And uh, I was already then uh, responsible for myself, 18 years. Uh, in 92, I turned 13, so I could do whatever I want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I had a little money by the side. And with this money, I bought some ice tools in a, in a local fabrication in Tirol called Stubai. Yeah. And with these ice tools, I did right away my first 
ice fall. I had practiced at home already with pull-ups and all training. I was already quite fit at this time. I had done also a little bit of rock climbing, easy rock climbing with friends. But my first ice fall, I had no rope and I had no screws. I had just the tools and, so, uh, and I soloed. Solo. I free soloed my first ice fall. Okay. And then years later, I discovered how hard it was. It was not super hard, of course, but it was already something in the higher grade three, lower grade four, which was somebody who has never done ice climbing, only steep snow climbing. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. Sounds like you were committed. Yeah, done. yeah, and uh, on the same time, I realized right away when I did this that is exactly the place where I want to be. Yeah, this is something very important with ice climbing. It's a lot when now when I when I on the events and that I'm organizing for ice climbers and we have beginners that are coming and you can see right away some people you really love to be there on the ice. You have to love it, and then you will you will find your way. But if you don't feel it in a way at home, mm -hmm. it's the same, I think, with the snow. Yeah. If you don't feel at home in the snow and in the ice, it will be very difficult for you to become a, a good ice climber. <laughs> yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. You need to feel at home and you yeah. need the passion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that leads us to our main question today. How do you really become an ice climber these days? These days, I think... Um, These days, I, I have also, I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that I'm, that I was starting ice climbing in this period of the early 90s. Yeah. Because there was the Alps here. There were already very strong climbers and most of the hard ice lines here in the Alps have been already climbed, but there were not that many guidebooks and there were some pictures in the magazines to, for inspiration. And there were some books like from Yvon Chouinard. And the big climbers at this time here, the ice climbers were the, the French climbers like François Damilano and Thierry Renault. I both know them very well. They are good friends of mine now. Mm -hmm. And so, but you, you had a lot of room to develop your own fantasy. And I think this is very important. That's my message that I want to give to all the people that want to start ice climbing, especially in Norway, mm -hmm. where I rediscovered my youth. Because when I came in Norway first time for ice climbing in 2012, we went through all these valleys and you see endless ice and there's no guidebooks. And that's a great thing because I think this is the spirit of ice climbing. The spirit of ice climbing is discovering. It's not about grades. It's not about the, the performance for itself. It's really about having the adventure, about having the imagination to see something, to get inspired by it mm. and then to, to climb it. And so it's really about this journey, about this adventure. And so nowadays I would say, yeah, if you start now, I would not recommend to start like I did it. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, if you say if you are like a, a, beginner, a beginner, maybe you, maybe you have climbed something in some rock. years, yeah, maybe some rock, mm -hmm. maybe some indoor, and you are intimidated by the ice climbing, yeah. Well, I would, uh, I would really recommend to, to come to some of the festivals. I mean, I organize in Konya, the, for example, since 10 years, the Konya Ice Opening, which is always the weekend before Christmas. And at your home in Oster Valley. At your home in Oster Valley. And there we have the, 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 the clinics for beginners and uh -huh. for ready for advanced people. Yeah. And then we are organizing in the last week of February up in Troms in uh, Fjärkisten, the Arctic Ice Festival. In Norway. And in Norway, exactly. That is since we are doing this in three years, um, together with our good Norwegian friends. And there you have really a full week where you can really learn in perfect way the approach to the big ice climbing also. Like let's say really, because there we have easy access, we have lots of ice and um, yeah, it's, it's really a very good location and you learn You have the chance to learn from some of the best climbers on the planet because every year we are able to get a really good group of um, of very strong ice climbers and guides up there, mm. which are teaching the clinics. And it is rarely that you can have them so close to you and teaching you. So yeah. this is a very good location, um, location and occasion. So we, we are organizing this together with Norana. Norana is one of the sponsors of the event. It sounds great. And there will be soon... Information coming up for the Konya Venorana will be there and also for the Arctic Ice Festival. So it's just to sign up? Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you're around Chamonix, you can come over to the Konya Ice opening. And if you are up in Norway or Scandinavian, yet, or yeah, Scandinavian, or yet also since it's a, in fact, this year it will it will take the whole event. If you want to take the whole event, it's ten days. So it makes also sense to come from a longer destination. That was our idea. That we said we have so many um, guests in the last years that came from the states mm. or that came from Japan. So we want that when they travel, that they can stay a longer period. Also, of again, course. that it makes sense in a way to do this long travel. Mm. Yeah. But there is a great advantage to have started with rock climbing in the first place before you go ice climbing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's for sure a good. It makes things easier because then you know already the, the basic systems. Because the basic systems like the belaying and the rope handling and the harness, that's all the same. Mm. And then we add all this, uh, the specialties, the crampon technique, the ice screws, how you put a belay on ice screws. All this comes then when you, when you approach ice climbing. And even better, if you do, for example, track climbing already, track rock climbing, you know uh, how to use the friends, the rocks, the pitons. Yeah. And that is something that we use a lot also when we are doing um, ice climbing, because sometimes the ice is so thin mm. that you need to use the rock mm. for, belay, uh, for belay or for protection. Yeah. Yeah. And you learn how to differentiate between good ice yeah. and bad uh, ice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is something... This is something um, you you need to. But at the end, it's always practice. Mm -hmm. But therefore, I'm a fan from the concept we have at the Arctic Ice Festival because I see when people are there and climbing five days straight, from the first day to the last day. First of all, you see a big, 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 big evolution in their technique. Mm -hmm. And then you see also that they get way more careful with their tools and they know where to place the tools and less ice is falling down and you, you get an understanding of this fascinating matter of frozen water. Yeah. What is your message to all of those who think that ice climbing sounds and looks scary? Mm, I think it's good to be scared a little bit. And I'm, I'm also always scared still, even after more than 1,000 ice climbs I did. And I want to be. You're still bit, scared. I'm still scared a little bit, and I think that's important because ice for us humans in in the first place is not something where we really belong from our nature. But this little this this little fear um, gives you this extra focus mm -hmm. to do the right decisions and to have also uh, let's say the right body tension in your to to move rightly. Yeah, no, yeah. so I I think. Um, there's positive fear and there's negative fear. And you have to see with yourself, and we see it right away in the clinics, if somebody gets too much intimidated, then we stop. And mm -hmm. then, for example, at the Arctic Ice Festival, there's also the possibility to do top tour, mm -hmm. ski touring. Mm -hmm. And so then we say, okay, maybe it's better you do a day of ski touring, you try again to find an, an, an easy an easy approach to it. Yeah. Um, but in general, I think it's it's good to be a little bit intimidated, intimidated, which but to use this this fear to get the motivation, the better it feels when you do it, and mm. then it's a great feeling when you see ah, oh, the end, it's not so bad. To so use uh, your nerves in a yeah, good way. Yeah, I remember we had this year uh, in January um, this one day event with Norana near to the Holmen Colin on a little ice fall. Yeah. Uh, I when I say the name now, you will laugh because Bonchan. Bonchan, yes, Bonchan, in Oslo, in, in the Oslo, capital of yeah. And that was very interesting because uh, we had a big group, all beginners, and there were a lot of people that were pretty intimidated. And at the end of the day, they were moving really with confidence on this. It's not work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think this is something we definitely want to repeat also. So check the Norena event calendar when you are in Oslo. It will be around January again. And uh, so, yeah, this is an occasion also just it's not the same like up in the Arctic, but it gives you a really a, a small taste already about that's, ice climbing. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Someone told me that you have this method of going down when you're ice climbing that has this strange name, the Abalakov. Abalakov. Yeah, Abalakov. Yeah. You must tell me about this because mm -hmm. that's maybe the most scary thing of all. 
Yeah, well, it's scary when you are when you when you don't know the strength of ice. I mean, good ice, this blue ice, has an amazing, amazing holding power. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and a Balakov is kind of, um, to explain it, is uh, also called a V-thread. Yeah. Uh, or Lunul in, in, in French is, you put um, two ice screws on the ice and you build kind of a, um, how do you, an hourglass. Uh, yeah. And then you, you put a, a, a little piece of rope into it. And on this rope you upside and that way you don't leave any of your screws. But nowadays what I do, <clears throat> I pass my rope directly into it, the, the double rope system I have. So I don't leave any kind of cordlet. But I would recommend that is called a naked abalakov because we don't leave anything. We just pull down our rope afterwards. Yeah. And the only thing that remains is these two holes where we put the rope through. And But I would recommend this only to really expert climbers that know what they do because you have to find really solid ice for of this. Course. For example, right now, this year, we climbed uh, after the Arctic Ice Festival, one of the longest ice falls in the north of Norway. It's called the Skretbecken, and uh, that is in um, Badufoss, yes. uh, in, in, in Settermoen. Uh, and uh, next to Settermoen, and there we could do all the 700 meters upsigning without leaving anything. Um, because we always found good ice where we could put the uh, Abalokov in a... In an organic way, it's also yeah. called organic because so you you don't leave anything behind. So you just make a hole in the ice and yeah. put the rope through. Yeah, it, you have a, and then you repel down from that yeah, ice. Exactly, exactly. And how yeah. do you know that this ice is gonna hold hold your body weight when you're going down? So what you do normally is so um, when you are building this abalakov, you put a, you put before a good screw, yeah. and then you are fixed in the screw. And then you, when you have the abalakov done, you put the rope through. You have a, a, a prosik on your double rope system, and then you give the abalakov a really good pull while you are still nice. attached to the ice screw, and you give it a really hard pull to uh -huh. see if there is anything happening with the abalakov, which never is. Because I put them really deep. I take the longest screws I have, and as I said, I clean the ice before. And um, I don't have the numbers not right now in my head, and so I don't want to say anything wrong, but it's an impressive holding power far over one ton that such an Abalakov has. When That's the ice amazing. Is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ice is such a tough material. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a very tough material. Yeah, absolutely. And why is this, what's this name, Abalakov? Why is it called that? Uh, Balakov is known as the name of a Russian, as you can uh, uh, imagine. He was the uh, the first guy. He said that he, who did it. It was okay. a Russian climber, but so it's um, named after him. Yeah, but uh, you see, then the Americans, of course, they say he invented it, and then so it's called the V thread. And, okay. uh, so, so the Americans they don't call it never a Balakov. It's always called the V thread, <laughs> and then here in France is called the Lunul. So it's politics as well. Yeah, kind of like always. There is a. <laughs> Yeah, I think in um, in alpinism, so sad it is. You always have politicians that try to use, um, yeah, the sport for their own uh, objectives. Yeah, of course. And therefore, for me, the biggest, my biggest idol for this was since we have the seventy-five uh, uh, anniversary of the first ascent of the Eiger North Face with yes. Anders Heckmeyer. And Anna Heckmeyer refused back in the days the, the Olympic gold medal that Adolf Hitler wanted to give him. Yeah, that's correct. And so for him, for me, Adolf Heckmeyer, his way of climbing uh, was for me a big inspiration. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for this kind of climbing. He always said he's climbing for himself and not for anyone else. Anyone else. And I think this is the... This is the... the, 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 the what I wanted to say also with the ice climbing. Ice climbing is... Alpinism, but in a very condensate format. Yeah. So that's uh, also my good friend um, Steve Swenson climbs over fifty years ice, five or years ice, and he has done Everest K two without oxygen. So he's a really, really strong all around alpinist. And we made this definition about ice climbing because I climb a lot with him in the Rockies and. A day on ice climbing is maybe shorter than an 8,000 meter peak, but you get the same values, you get the same adventure, you get the same 
let's say, um, feelings that you have on a big mountain when you climb the big north face, like the Jura's north face, or here the Drop yeah. north face, which I climbed all. So it's, it's just so more concentrated. Tempted. Concentrated, yeah. 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 Ice climbing is kind yeah. of uh, the original kind of alpinism, yeah. where you go for an adventure by yeah. yourself, yeah. for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And again, the cool thing is, Therefore, I say um, Norway is such a great country still because you have so much potential with no guidebooks. Just go there, have a look, get inspired and do it without um, without uh, having already too many ideas before in the head because it was on social media or because it was in a guidebook or because mm. it was in a magazine. I think this is the, 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 the to learn the open spirit, to see nature with open eyes. I think this is the the, 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 the the greatest gift that ice climbing brings to you. Mm. Yeah. And then also to imagine your own way. And then, as I said, you leave no traces. And then next winter, the next person that is coming will have the same adventure or probably already the next day because overnight there is a snowstorm and all your traces will be gone. And conditions yeah. change. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Therefore also... Um, For me, uh, at home in Konya, there's one ice line. It's called Repentant Super. It's the hardest ice line of Konya. And I have done it with Tanya together 54 times. But in these 54, because people are always asking me, why are you doing this? Why are you climbing this line 54 times? And I said, yeah, well, in these 54 times, <laughs> uh, we, we had never the same. You can never climb the same ice fall. Even if you come back the next day, what we did sometimes, it can change overnight completely with the wind, with the yeah, weather. Yeah. And you will have a totally different experience from one day to the next. And that makes ice climbing so fascinating for me compared to rock climbing. Because in rock climbing, yeah, I mean, you know, a hole can break and everything, sure. But on ice climbing, I really get this fascination of a, of a matter that I'm climbing on that is very, very alive. Mm. And you're a pioneer every time. Yeah. Yeah, you got the same feeling like the guys in the first ascent. First ascent. Yeah, yeah. So the season first ascent, in fact, is always like the first guys. And so for us, it's really, really the cool thing when we go to Canada in October and also then to do the first season first ascents on these big lines on the Stanley Head Wall. And also not a lot of people want to do this because this is the real adventure. We always say this is the real deal. The, the first person in the year going on these lines He gets the real deal. He yeah. has to check how the ice is, if the ice is already solid enough, how is it formed. Maybe it's completely different form. It can, it, also the grades, there can be a full grade difference easily. Mm. So back home and repentance, for example, we had one year and for some strange reason, there was this big overhang. And so suddenly it was not more grade six. It was way harder than grade six. <laughs> way harder. And, um, and, way, and, and to understand the grading and ice climbing for me, the, 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 the water ice grades go to seven. I see, I know that nowadays people give also grades eight and more, but that is for me uh, more a marketing joke than, uh, than reality. So, because we have to understand that, um, ice cannot form, uh, really horizontally. It can only form horizontally to a certain amount. For example, when you have these huge ice climbs in Norway, where the water is dripping on some rocks, then it forms a kind of medusas. And these things can lean out up to six, seven meters. Mm -hmm. And my hardest climb in Gutbangen, the, the Svartbergfossen or Mittagshoftenfossen, had this kind of crux. So then you have this, this grade seven or upper grade seven climbs that are really highly committed and very rarely to find. Or you have the spray ice. So you have uh, ice that is sprayed on the rock Mm -hmm. But then the protection will be on the rock and it will be bolts and then it's more dry tooling or mixed climbing than ice climbing. Mm -hmm. So this is more a, a philosophical debate. But let's talk about the proper water ice climbing. The water is running down mm -hmm. like on a waterfall. There seven is kind of the, 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 the upper limit. Yeah. And if you are a beginner, yeah, is there a grade one frozen yeah, waterfall? Absolutely. Somewhere. Like there on Holmkollen, this was more in the one two-ish area. Yeah. yeah. But absolutely, I mean, uh, you learn how to kick on your crampons, how to use your tools, and you get a first feeling. Yeah. And then on the up, uh, the, the cool thing on the Arctic Ice Festival is there we have um, everything up to five in a safe way. So people can really 
start from one and can try up to grade five ice climbing in, yeah. in safe in safe conditions. And that's a lot. Also, we have some mixed climbing up there and some dry tooling. So dry tooling is then the the, the 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 kind of summer training where you climb on rock with your ice tools on bedrock. Here, right away, said never on a do never dry tooling on an existing rock climbing rock. There's bad rock enough on this planet, and there you can climb with your tools. So there's dry tooling. Yeah, on there's bad dry tooling rock. on bedrock. It's like back home also where I live now in the Gran Paradiso. We have this one overhanging rock, and it's so really shitty. Nobody bolted it for, for, for hand climbing. So we put in there our bolts, big long bolts because it's chossie. And then we climb there with the tools and you get strong for the, for the, for the winter. And the same we have up in the Arctic. Uh, we have one place where people can try this. It's very athletic. And, um, then often, of course, you have then, uh, in harder ice mixed routes, you have passages with rock and then you get to the ice. And of course, on the in the big uh, places like in Gutwangen, you have these very hard mixed lines, which are then track mixed li- mixed lines. So there's no more bolt protection because it's the way routes should be opened in the mountains in Norway without the bolts. And so there you have to bring your friends and your rocks and your pitons and to protect them in a good way. Mm. Dry tooling, climbing on dry rock. Yeah. With crampons and two ice axes. Yeah. It seems a little bit strange to yeah. the everyday man. Absolutely. And I understand it. And I found it very strange too. And um, <clears throat> also here I was in this lucky generation to witness how this sport was born. Because when I started here in 92 in uh, in the Chamonix Mountains with mountaineering, it was normal that when you came on the rock in climbing here, Yeah. You put off the crampons and you took the ice axe away and uh, you climbed with your hands and with your boots, even in the winter. I remember my first winter um, when I started living here in Chamonix in 94. And I, we did uh, the Arrête de Forbes on the Aiguille de Chardonnay, yeah. my friend and me, and it was in winter. And we took off the crampons and the, the, to put the ice axe away. Every time we met, our, we came on a rock. Which took us a lot of time because there's always ice mix, but we, you see, it was really in this, in the, uh, even 90, in 94, it was still in the mentality that you didn't want to touch with your crampons to rock. No. But then with the, with the years, there was, uh, Jeff Lowe, uh, in Colorado was, um, setting up this, uh, visionary road called Octopussy. So what he did is he climbed the rock and he climbed to an icicle. And he connected several icicles to each other while climbing the rock in between and while using the ice axe in the rock. And there was a big controversy about this. So there was a lot of discussion, if this is okay, it's not okay. And uh, I was more in the beginning on the, let's say, um, traditional side. And I said, oh, it's not okay. Um, we should use the hands. You were skeptical. About I was skeptical about this. And uh, so... I climbed on and I said, okay, when there's ice, I climb with the ice tools. And when there's rock, I climb with my normal soles and with my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there came the moment where the, the whole sport of ice climbing was evolving extremely because we had on the one side also the competition climbers. And so there was ice climbing competitions coming up. And at the beginning, it was only on ice, but very quickly they understood when people are climbing only on ice, even if it's 30 meters long, and there are some overhanging passages in it, The only the physical part, when there is no mental part in it, is really not that difficult like on the rock climbing. That's huge overhang. So what they did, they incorporated some passages with plywood, where they made overhangs into the ice, where you had to climb them with the tools. And so now when you look now on the so-called ice climbing World Cup, Mm-hmm. This is probably uh, for a 40 meter route is probably three meter ice climbing in it. The rest is plastic holds, metal holds and plywood. Oh. And, but it's extremely from the, from the, from the physical effort. It's, let's say a final route in the, in the ice world cup is probably like a nine, a eight C plus. It's really, really athletic. Mm. Then what happened is that the, the evolution of the ice tools also changed extremely. 
So back when I started ice climbing, we had the leashes on the ice tool. I mean, so you had to, the, 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 the leash was fixed to your ice tool and you were hanging in the leashes, which saved quite a bit of, of strength. That sounds logical to us. Yeah, beginners. because you cannot lose the, uh, the, 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 the ice tools. And then, um, in 2001, two, they were coming the first leashless tools, especially for the competition climbers, mm -hmm. because they give you way more freedom of movement and of different techniques, hand changes and so on. And then also there was the, 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 the for me, very logical uh, reflection that also rock climbing, you will not put a, a leash on a hold. Uh, so that means you cannot put your hand on a hold and then put a leash in it and then you can hang on this leash and not on the hold. So that means if you have a leash, you are not holding yourself. You get holden by the leash. Yeah. And so, yeah. Then Tanya and me, we took the leashes away. That was 2005. We were a little bit late because, as I said, we were not so, we were pretty traditional. But how did that feel? Uh, scary. Very scary. <laughs> I, rem I remember the first climbs we did, it felt really scary that suddenly um, the tool was just by itself in the ice when you put a screw. And I was concerned at the beginning of dropping a tool or losing a tool. And so far, uh, since 2005, I've never lost or dropped the tool. Never. Because never, never ever. And also Tanya not, because you are focused on this. Because I'm, my question is, what happens if you lose that axe? Yeah, it would be really bad. <laughs> it would be really bad. <laughs> a but, bad situation. Yeah. But this is the thing with ice climbing. Anyhow, the harder ice climbing get, the more you need to be calm. So that is the, that is the controversial thing with the ice climbing. So that means in hard ice climbing, the harder ice climbing, the harder the grade gets, the bad, the, let's say the worse the ice quality gets also. That means you have less possibly to put protection and somehow you have to do big runouts, mm -hmm. really big runouts, like 15, 20 meter runouts where you know you cannot fall. But on the same time, the ice is bad, so you cannot hit it hard. But a human urge is to hit the ice hard yeah, when, you are, when you are, when you are, so you, it's, um, I compare therefore the very hard ice climbing, like, um, like something like the big wave surfing. They, I've never done big wave surfing, but it's obvious. When you're on the thing, there is no turning around. No. You have to go to the end and you have to stay calm. If you panic, you are done. It's point of no return. Exactly. And this is what very hard ice climbing is saying. There's no point of return. If you're on this, you need to know what to do. And you need also, therefore, be very careful when you choose the days to do something. Mm -hmm. Like for me, the hardest climbs I did in Gutwangen, this is not climbs I could do every day uh, in the year. This is also not in my life. This is some very selected moments in your career where you have the feeling you can do this today. And also the team mm. that are climbing with you, like on uh, on Kiesket I was with Tanya. And on the Swartberg, I was all with Tanya and Heike, her twin sister. She's yeah. also on the run athlete. The twin sisters. Twin sisters, yeah. And... I remember when we had this crux pitch coming, this big pillar. Uh, we had this talk and everybody, at the end, it doesn't matter who's leading really. The whole team has to be convinced that you want to do this because the danger is there for like in alpinism always for the whole team, not mm. only for, for one leader. Mm. And so therefore, it's not that often that you can, that you can do this uh, extreme, extreme lines. It's how you feel that yeah, day yeah, and how yeah. your mentality works yeah. in that so, situation. But coming back to the leashless climbing. So the leashless climbing then real, let us realize we need to get more power. And of course you get power holding on your tools when you rock climb. A really strong rock climber like somebody who climbs 8A will also have um, a lot of power in his hands to hold a tool, but still it's not the same. And so there was dry tooling evolving pretty quickly. So there's one place here in the Chamonix Valley, it's called Le Fayet. Le Fayet is really uh, one of the birthplaces of pure dry tooling here in the Alps. And this place is really, the rock is terrible. You never would like to climb there with your hands, but it's perfect, perfect for, for right. dry tooling. Yeah, yeah. And so we went at the beginning quite a bit there and then we found places over in Konya, bolted them by ourselves and started to do our training. And now, as I said, in the summer months, I do at least three days a week. Uh, I do dry tooling and four days I do rock climbing. 
or four days, dry tooling, three days rock climbing. And then, yeah, in the, in the routes developed now up to day 16, which is then the equivalent of a 9C route. Mm -hmm. And so I myself, I climb routes when I'm in shape up to D11. So, and uh, I never pushed it further because then... So dry yeah. tooling is evolving. As yeah, well. evolving extremely as a, as a hard sport. If I really like sport climbing. It's now the people that are hard on dry tooling, they don't go ice climbing, they just do this. <laughs> just do they just do dry tooling. And so these people that are climbing the 15, the 16, they are these competition climbers. Yeah. They are mostly also extremely strong rock climbers. Um, but they are not in um, alpinism, they are not in ice climbing, they have probably never climbed ice in their whole life. And, well, they are dry tooling experts. Yeah, they are dry tooling experts, yeah. exactly. So, which is fine. So, you see, it's just, um, uh, I just saw that I that I could really make my ice climbing way safer with the dry tooling because now I'm really strong and so now I have a good grip. Mm -hmm. And I don't lose the grip, and you don't want to lose the grip when you have no leashes. So therefore, <laughs> you need to dry tool. But if I join your beginner course yeah. in Aosta Valley or yeah. in Fums in Norway, mm -hmm. will I have leashes on my first no. ice climb? No, but you will have leashes. Um, we call them the spinner leashes. So this is leashes, they are elastic, and they are on the harness. And from this elastic... Uh, they go up to your tool, so you cannot drop the tool. So okay. you have not that's a, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is also a thing that I would recommend strongly if you climb up in the mountains here on a big north face. I use them all the time. Yeah. Let's say when I climb here on the Jurassic north face or on the Drott, uh, and you do one of these big ice routes, I have always these so-called uh, V-links or spinner leashes. And uh, therefore, you cannot drop them by chance. Because in the mountains, it's a little bit different. You There is also some... Dry tooling then involved and easier. Tool can slip easier there and then you are in a really bad situation. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a yeah, bad yeah, situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have brought some of your equipment yeah, today. Yeah, Let's yeah. have a look at it. Yeah. Bring it into the studio. Yeah. So I brought uh, my dry wagon pack. The not a wagon pack. Yeah, the waterproof one, which is very important. The full waterproof one. Because sometimes even uh, if it's very cold, there can come a lot of water on. So we have the ice tools here. So this is in fact an ice tool that is really good for steep ice climbing and also for dry tooling. It's called the ergonomic. But I put, uh, when I climb ice on it, the so-called pure ice pick on it. The ice pick is then thinner than the, the dry tooling picks. Dry tooling picks, of course, they have a little bit uh, larger diameter in order to blow, to be more resistant for the for the climbing on the rock. And then of course in the pack there is yeah gloves. Very important and I can really say in the glove line from Norena there is the Falcatin dry glove. Yeah. And this glove is awesome. Because he has a lot of dexterity and it's waterproof. And it's really, for me, uh, glove is really, as you can imagine, nice climbing, always a question I get asked a lot. What are you using when you are leading, especially these hard pitches? So for me, the, the Falcatin dry glove is really good because it's a good, it's still a little bit thermic, but it gives enough grip and dexterity on the tools. Really nice glove. Then we have a helmet, of course. Yeah, and then we start with my, my kit. And so we have the Trollwagen, the new Trollwagen Light Gore-Tex jacket. And, mm, yep. And uh, there's a really nice uh, update on this jacket now. Um, there's an enhanced fit now compared to the previous version, which was already great. But this now is all overall redone, redesigned also with some a little bit stronger material on the elbows and on the shoulders. And this is a sample, and this sample did the whole last season with me. So it was uh, 60 days out there on ice and another 10 days on mix. So 70 days. I washed it, but you can see it's still in great shape mm. uh, for such a long season. So really, really can recommend this, this product. And now it's in the shops. Yeah, it's in well. the shops now. And um, yeah, and also I learned... Um, uh, when this jacket was born, in fact, uh, it goes back to the early 80s and it was already this design with pocketless hips. And we just found out um, that uh, Norana is, yeah, 
very, very probable the inventor of the modern climbing jacket without pockets on the hips. Yeah. So everybody else is doing it now, but Norena invented it. So that's a great, great and, thing. And the troll wagon line goes all the way back to when they yeah. winter ascended the yeah. troll wall. Troll wall in yeah. 1980. Scary. That scares me. <laughs> that scares me. So um, then, of course, you need a good base layer or mid layer underneath. So mid layer, I use the, the power stretch toy wagon. Really nice. It's warm. The head, I love the head to put it under the helmet. It fits great under the helmet. It gives enough insulation for also colder days. And then um, wool base layer, of course. You always use wool as always a wool, always wool, because I'm when I'm on, out traveling in Canada or up in Norway, I'm not. I I know it's probably some people might find it ah, disgusting. I don't know, but I'm not a big fan of washing all the time my stuff. And uh, with the synthetics, everybody knows it gets really hard, especially for the people around you. <laughs> yeah. And um, it tends to do so. Yeah, yeah. And so the new uh, UL base layers. Yeah, even I would say a step up from the the, the, the base layers we had before with uh, Norana. So now they are really, really nice. I bring always um, two. So I have one on on the approach, which yeah. I sweat full. And then when I start climbing, I change. Okay. I can highly recommend everybody to do this. Also, I, I'm not wearing, I never wear the, 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 the power stretch on the approach. On the approach, I normally wear an Octa jacket, something really breathable. Mm -hmm. uh, because often you, you go a little bit quicker and it's steeper and you want to really sweat out. So also the, the new Falcon Aero jacket is very light. Uh, this very light windbreaker is nice. Or uh, in the Lumen line, there's the, the, the vest, which is really nice. The Alpha vest, the Polartec Alpha vest, which is, which is brilliant. Now there's the, for next winter, the Polartec Alpha jacket coming, which I'm looking forward for Canada because there's some insulation also on the arms. So um, important for me is when I start out with the climb, I want to have everything dry on me. Let's say the, the underwear needs to be dry and the, 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 there should be no sweat in it. Because again, when you climb, you will start again to building up sweat. So for me, this is the safe solution and the comfortable mm. solution. Then the pants, of course. Pants is really important and good finding good ice climbing pants is hard. And I can say now in the in the we are lucky because you know we have two great options in the in the Norana line. We have the light, this is the new one, which is coming now to the shops, which is the new Gore-Tex light, and then there is the bib. Yeah. And uh, the bib is indestructible and the cut of the lower leg is made perfectly. So you never snatch with the crampons. Also here on the new Gore-Tex light, you have the possibility to make a trimmer with the, with the buttons. Mm -hmm. But I would say if somebody is looking for a pant and he's just ice climbing, ice climbing either, I would say get the bibs because you the will use them. Bibs. The Trollwagen bibs, you will use them for years. And if there's somebody who also wants them to use them for alpinism and wants to have a little lighter package and also wants to use them uh, probably on the skis on some days, I would say go for the light. The light here also same thing. This pant made the whole last season and I spent quite a bit of time on my knees and it looks like new and I'm really, I'm really, really, uh, really impressed by the, by the durability of for such a light garment mm -hmm. and also the fit. No snatching on the knees, no snatching on the butt. So this is something really, um, really important. And then um, I didn't brought it with me today because we have outside like uh, 35 degrees. <laughs> so I found it pretty strange to bring it. But uh, it's very important that you have um, that you have an insulated jacket with you, a belay jacket. And there we have a good selection in different uh, heat variations, I would say. Normally what I use here in the Alps for water ice climbing in the winter is the, the Primal Luft 100, the Trollwagen. Mm -hmm. Great option, has a great hood that goes perfectly over a helmet and the Primal Luft gives great insulation for temperatures down to minus 10, minus 15. And then up in Arctic Norway, I use mostly then the, the Trollwagen, uh, the, the, the big down jacket and especially for me, the Ace down jacket, uh, which is not more on the line, but maybe will come back. 
-hmm. Again, it's a wonderful solution because it has this super strong outside material, which is waterproof and you can climb with it. And so it's really, really good. So, so you have the down inside. Yeah, the down inside, which is protected uh, by the by the by the outside material. And then also, of course, when it's colder, there's le way less chance that there's water running on the water waterfalls. It can happen. So Nora is the only brand that have thought about the ice climber. Yeah. In front. Yeah. For all Absolutely. These years. Yeah. So interesting to talk with you. You must tell us a little bit more about the Gudvangen climbs in Norway. Yeah. You have made this famous list yeah. of your 100 top frozen waterfall climbs. Uh, we can read about it on your own website. Yeah. And I noticed that on top of that top 100 list, you had some ice climbs yeah. in Gudvangen, Norway. Yeah. yeah. Well, how would you describe this valley on the western coast? Epic. Impressive, dark, dark as well. Yeah, dark. and you go there in the darkest hour. Yeah, yeah. So in January, February. January, February, exactly. So uh, Kjerskatkvelden was the first line we could climb there, and Kjerskatkvelden is one of the longest and hardest ice lines of the planet, so known. Um, it's nearly one thousand vertical meters high. And it has uh, 800 meters of steep climbing in it. It's impressive. Yeah. So it's 14 big pitches with two 70 meter half ropes. It's kind of a monster. Yeah, it's a monster. So um, we were there in 2013 in January and we went up to a long trip to Norway with our van. So we drove up from Italy to Norway, to the north of Denmark, took the ferry to Bergen. Yeah. And then our objective was uh, in the Lerdal Valley. We wanted to climb uh, the so-called Torfassen. Mm -hmm. And on the way to Lerdal, we drove the Gudwangen Valley. And um, while we were driving along, we looked, Tanya was on the, I was on the stair wheel and she was looking outside and she said, she said suddenly said, you have to stop. There's something nuts. There's a, a line that is not ending. And I said, yeah, okay. I so, saw something. I saw something. And so this is why I, what I said. We had no idea, no guidebook, nothing. So we checked it out. We looked outside. We, we looked up. And and then it was already a little bit getting dark, like usual in Norway. And, and then suddenly Especially we saw some, in January. Yeah, and then we saw some, that was, yeah, and then we saw some lights high up on the thing. I said, well, there's people climbing. So I drove back a little bit of the road and I saw a tank down there with a Russian car. And I said, okay, there's Russian climbers on this. That's interesting. Hmm. So next day, um, we, we were going to Lerdal. We tried attempted Torfossen. It was not working. So the next day then afterwards, we came back and uh, um, tried this line, Kjerskat Kvelven. And uh, in the meantime, the temperatures had risen pretty hard. For, for one day, it was raining, like so often in Norway, but then in the night already, the temperatures dropped again. So when we came to the base of the climb, the climb, the first pitches were really wet. Yeah. And uh, so you start uh, more or less at the 70 meter sea level. So the first, I remember the first pitches were like really full with water and steep. Uh, maybe grade five-ish, upper grade five-ish, and really like lots of water coming down on you. And then there was uh, the there's this short snow step that brings you then higher to the really to the head wall, you can say, okay. where the real steep climbing starts. And then the ice was getting dry there and very brittle, and very. Then there was a lot of snow on it. We didn't find any tracks from the Russians. So only on the snowfield there was some tracks, but. On the ice, nothing anymore. Everything was already covered under this mm -hmm. new crust of, uh, of ice and snow that had built or the rain lower down. And um, yeah, and then there, then, um, then there was going pitch for pitch of hard climbing. What does hard climbing there mean? So you have always this crust of snow, even on vertical ice, that makes getting the ice crews in very difficult, sometimes impossible. And also the tools are not really trustful because they can rip through. Okay. Because there's a lot of air in the ice. So you have to clean a lot. So it's, it's very, very demanding. And um, there was then kind of really one crux pitch coming. It was a freestanding pillar 
which was really bad in the ice. And so you had to climb it without any protection for 20 meters, which, yeah, you have to be really there. Sounds so scary. Yeah, that was scary. Then we climbed this one up. And then they was getting already later and we still had to, let's say, one third to go. And then Tanya was leading another pitch and I was leading another pitch. And then again and then. And then I did a kind of mistake. I was putting my tool in kind of a hanging icicle where I already saw when I placed the tool, this is bad, this thing comes down. And it fell down and it hit Tanya because the belay was not really protected. Okay. And it hit her on the shoulder and she was really yelling and, and was yelling in pain. And it was, oh no, we are, we are 800 meters up here. And uh, it's getting late it's getting dark we have probably there was temperatures already at minus 15 at this moment and she was hurting her shoulder she was hurting her shoulder so i put up my belay and she came up very slowly and then we were discussing what are we doing and it was a moment when we both were sitting there on this belay high up the about the goodmangen fjord with the view on the fjord and mm. but on the other side it was also a very peaceful moment And uh, so I asked her, what shall we do? Shall we go on or shall we go down? And she said, no, I want to try. You lead the next pitch. I see what my shoulder is doing, if I can get back. So so I was doing one big more pitch and then it was getting dark. And there was this exit pillar, you can say, to get to the plateau, like a 60 meter high steep pillar. And we are where we are there in the cave next to it. And there we measured the temp, we had a temperature um, thermometer on our pack and we saw it was minus 20 at this moment. Oh. It was getting really cold. That's really and, cold. Yeah. And she said, no, I want to go on. And so she set out in the dark and with a headlamp, of course. But yeah, and I was standing there and she was climbing this huge thing up uh, from the road down. It looked like a 10 meter thing, but at the end it was nearly the full 70 meters run out to get to the plateau. And then I came up up there and then it was wonderful. It was the moon was there and it's kind of a plateau, like this typical Norwegian plateau. Yeah. And yeah, we were up there and it was a, a really magic moment when you see so small the lights on the road and from the, from the village down there. And um, it was a really, really, really peaceful moment. And then... Magical moment. Magical moment. And then, uh, yeah, I started to... To, to set up the V-threads, the Abalakovs, to go down and uh, took us a long time. And so you didn't walk around. No, no. You we just, did, we used just the method. Yeah, we the used the method. method to yeah. go down. Because walking around. In the dark. In the dark, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And walking around, um, I think I cannot recommend to anyone whoever will do this because you end up in this valley which is between Leerdal and Gudwangen and there's the tunnel between uh, Gudwangen and Leerdal and I think in this valley there's not even a village so you have a long walk (laughs) a very long walk till you get back to somewhere civilization so that's why you repel down yeah 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 yeah. I mean usually I would prefer to walk down Mm -hmm. absolutely but on this climb um yeah we had to upside there so yeah, it took us a long time, but we took we took our time there. No, no special speed techniques or anything. Just keep the focus. You look for good eyes. Put your V threads, and then you upsell. And mm. even if it takes the whole night, you get down safely. And it took us nearly the whole night. I mean, we set out at six in the morning, and we came back to our van at four thirty the next day so almost 24 almost hours. almost 24 hours yeah i think people have climbed it then faster afterwards um especially going faster down uh, i think but i am there more on the side that i take my time and make yeah. it safe and make there's safe. already enough adventure what you do there the 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 the, the, the experience was awesome and then the other climb we did, the big one, that was the Svartbergfossen, which is a little bit more up the valley. Not as long, but really steep, big pillar. Has been climbed before. But I saw the pictures from the other guys that did it. I know everybody who climbed it. It's all good friends. There's a very small community of people that <laughs> yeah. are doing this. And it didn't have this big, scary leaf that I had to overcome when I climbed it with Tanya and Heike. And so... But I'm pretty sure they had their moments too. So mm-hmm. I think on these big lines, uh, you always have the the feeling of being on a monster. Yeah. You always feel the water inside. It's like the whole thing is shaking always a little bit. 
and um, therefore they are called fossen. I mean, for the listeners, they are not know what a fossen is. We should explain the yeah, word fossen. It's, a, it's can, a waterfall. Yeah, a big waterfall. Big with waterfall. A lot of pressure in Norwegian. Inside. Yeah, with a lot of pressure in it. And the first time that Tanya and me we, on, we understood what fossen means was on a climb we did near to Rükan, okay. the so-called Hawksfossen. It's a, one of the more committed climbs in uh, Rükan. Because there you really felt through your crampons and ice tools the ice shaking from the water that was really pounding down inside of mm. the thing. So it's like this vibrations you really feel. And I've talked to a friend who climbed Wettesfossen and he said he was so scared on this last pitch of Wettesfossen because the whole thing was shaking the shaking. whole time with the, with the pressure of the water inside. <laughs> A shaking waterfall. A shaking waterfall. So I don't want to be there. <laughs> no. So therefore, um, be always careful when you heard the name Fossen. That means a lot of raw energy. And That's for pressure. the Norwegian listeners, we can say that uh, in Gudvangen you climbed the Charskred Kvalven. Yeah. That's how you... Charskred Kvalven. And Svartberg. Svartberg or Mittags Hüften. Yes. Also yeah. Called that. yeah, yeah, they are two names. It's yeah, yeah. a bit difficult to find out the right name. Yeah. Such great stories from Goodbyeon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matthias, we are approaching the end of this episode and we would like you to answer some questions that we give every guest yeah. in our podcast. What are your best tips and tricks to create nature experiences in our everyday life? The, first, the most important thing is you have to go outside. <laughs> yeah. This is really something... And don't watch uh, television. Yeah, don't watch television. Um, don't um, put your phone away. And when you go outside, don't take the phone with you. No. If you can, or if you take it with you for safety reasons, just put it somewhere where you cannot look the whole time on it. Um, I really appreciate your new technique, but I think it's um, really, really important to also take it away sometimes. Yeah. Just be there, see nature, feel nature. I think for uh, humans, getting the relation to nature is the most powerful source of energy and inspiration we have. I mean, we're living on this. Mm. Norwegians are blessed because I think uh, you have way more relation in the population than many other countries have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have grown up in Frankfurt and uh, for me, the weekends with my grandparents where I could go out in the forest and play there were always the most precious time. And as yeah. I said before, the, the winter holidays, being out in the snow on the mountains, that gave me really the, that really gave me the energy for the, for the whole year, you can say. Yeah. <laughs> Which international celebrity would you like to invite on your next trip? Your next ice climbing? I think Jon Esper. Jon Esper? Yeah. The Norwegian writer? Yeah, yeah, because... The Iceman. Yeah. Um, he knows. My, my sister is writing thrillers too. So yeah. she is. Uh, and I think yours. He really can capture in a great way this this really cold, dark ambience. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. No, and he, he's a climber as well. And he's a climber as well. And I, yeah, he's a fascinating, fascinating yeah. person. You Nesper. He's yeah. a good celebrity to bring. Yeah. What kind of steps have you taken in your life? To live a little more environmentally friendly. So stay as much as I can around Konya. Do all my training, climbing there. In the Aosta Valley. In the Aosta Valley. Yeah, even in Konya at home, really. Yeah, like I have in records, your own village. In my own village. I have records now for one month using no car. And uh, getting my food from here and there around. There are some people having chickens and some have some veggies. Yeah. And I know not everybody can do this. Uh, not everybody is blessed to live in a place like this. Um, yeah, but that, that, that really is something I, 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 I do. And then I'm vegetarian mm -hmm. um, since I'm 14 years old. Um, now in the last years I changed when I spent my time in Norway, in the north of Norway, and I can get hand on a good salmon that comes out of the sea. Then I eat also some fish. That's good to hear. And, um, I Fresh also, salmon. Yeah, yeah, fresh salmon, and also I would eat some mousse uh, if it's hundred. But I tried it, and after so long being vegetarian, this kind of red meat it's really hard on me. Yeah. 
So, no, but yeah, I, I say this is the things I do, like cutting down on the dairy products, on the meat, and also mm-hmm. on the use of fossil energy during the summertime. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite soundtrack before you go ice climbing? No, I think we, we are listening, listening a lot um, a lot of sound from Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. and uh, Chevalier de Saint Graal. Yes. This is the Knights of the Holy Grail. This is from the Da Vinci Code. The, the theme, this is something uh, I have often in my head while I'm going on a quest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good sound. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add before we have to say goodbye? Any life motto or life philosophy? See, my life philosophy is, that's what I already said, is just try to see the world with your own eyes. Try to get away from uh, too much inspiration. Inspiration is important, but try to get inspired really by the beauty of what this planet can offer you mm. and also what relationships can offer you. Thanks, Matthias. Yeah, thank you, Edith. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Hope to see you soon again. Thank you. Norona Podcast is published by the Norwegian outdoor company Norona Sport. Norona has been producing premium outdoor products since 1929. Check out our clothes, backpacks, tents, sleeping bags and skis on our website norona.com. There you will also find more inspiring stories about our rich history, the expeditions we have participated in, our ambassadors and our ambitions in sustainability. Thank you for listening to Nurona Podcast. We really appreciate it. And welcome to nature.